The reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 12. We'll take as our reading Proverbs chapter 12, verses 6 through 10. Lend your attention, this is God's word. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is a commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on the reading and the preaching of the word. How precious is your word, O Lord, in it there is wisdom, uh, riches, treasures, um, much that is of a great and indeed uh, eternal worth for heaven and earth shall fade away, but uh, your word will remain forever. And we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, has appeared full of the treasures and riches of wisdom and righteousness. And so we pray that you would posture us now, O great God, at his feet as uh, he opens that treasure house um, by the Spirit, uh, teaching, um, forming, fashioning, correcting, retrieving, building up uh, as only you can, O triune God. Uh, So enable that we would receive your word rightly now, uh, prepare our hearts to receive it as good soil, a most excellent seed, Uh, And be pleased, Lord, to bring forth lives uh, marked by eternal life, lives marked by faith and hope and love uh, to the praise of your glorious name. Uh, For we ask in Christ, amen. Continuing on in our time in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you can also find the questions printed for you, I believe, on the white sheet in the bulletin. The catechism can also be found at the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 973. But first, this is God's word. Uh, You shall not murder. Uh, Thus ends God's word. And then we'll ask once more question 68. What is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And then question 69, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. In Matthew chapter 15, the Lord teaches us something about a well-ordered home. Comes as somewhat of a surprise. He says, it is self-evident that it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here, he uses a self-evident truth to make a spiritual point 
But even in the self-evident truth, there's a good lesson. Here we see that constant affirmation of the importance of human life. While all life is important, human life is unique by God's design. To treat it otherwise would be against nature. Here the Lord makes that observation and extends it. He says, first, the children, then the animals. It would be wrong for people to starve and for animals to be well fed. That in and of itself is possibly thought provoking. But we won't go down that trail. The uniqueness of human life here at one level of our Lord's teaching raises the question of adequate provision for the necessities of that life. In general, children, people must have bread. Here it's bread, but it includes all sorts of things that life requires, does it not? We require any number of things in one form or another that make life possible. So then it's no surprise that in this, the sixth commandment, where God expresses his zealous and sincere concern and care for life, that we find the Westminster Standards wrestling with our responsibility to make necessary and adequate provisions for that life, both for ourselves and for others. We're beset by two dangers when it comes to God's gifts, God's provisions for the necessities of life. On the one hand, there is foolish and unreasonable abstinence. A foolish and an unreasonable refusal of God's good gifts or identifying them as that which is sinful. Various aesthetic, harsh to the body type movements throughout Christianity have been guilty of this. On the other hand, we also have a foolish and sinful excess. A forgetting that these gifts are given to us as means to an end and not as an end in and of themselves, which can bring about satisfaction. Additionally, we can mark how often our excess very frequently leads to a neglect of giving or a withholding from others who are in need. This is what the Lord teaches in his parable in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus who was content, the rich man, to indulge in a life of pure luxury all the while neglecting, overlooking, and thereby despising one who was in need. And so as we continue to consider this call that God has upon us to take heed of the gift of life, to nurture it and preserve it, both in ourselves and others, we can reflect upon his call to temperance and his call to generosity as the outworking of what's entailed in the sixth commandment. So first, we consider the call to temperance. 
The Westminster Larger Catechism states both negative and positive, or from the angle of abstinence and the angle of excess. So 135 we read, the sixth commandment requires a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreation. A sober use of sleep does not include right now. Two notes on this. First, physic means medicine or physician's aid. A sober use of medicine or the physician's aid, which is a particularly timely word for the men out there who have a particular propensity to ignore necessary medical attention, myself included. Mm. Second, the call here to commend the usefulness of all these things within reason includes drink, interestingly enough, which is clearly wine, but I don't think that that binds us to a required use of wine as, say, it binds us to a required use of sleep. That's worth pointing out. The negative statement comes in Westminster Larger 136. The sixth commandment forbids the immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreation. Just because it doesn't address sleep does not mean you are free to nap right now. Here, it's interesting to note that medicine is also not listed, neither is sleep. And we can be sure that we have a tendency to immoderately use both. It's possible to immoderately use medicine. It's possible to immoderately use sleep. Proverbs itself has much to say about excessive sleep and slothfulness. Perhaps the divines just thought it sufficient to call for a sober use of medicine and sleep and that we would understand the balance that was required. (coughs) It's worth starting out by saying all these things are gifts. They're gifts. Sleep is a gift. Recreation is a gift. Drink is a gift. Food is a gift. Labor is a gift. Paul writes to Timothy, no longer drink any water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent illness. Many of God's gifts have a self-evident usefulness about them. Here, Paul is commending wine to Timothy. He very clearly has a medicinal purpose that he has in mind here as he draws attention to uh, Timothy's weak stomach, perhaps the water there being Uh, particularly unclean wine not being subject to the same uncleanness of water due to the presence of alcohol and a cleansing property. Um, So even if you were to reduce wine to that, you see that there's a usefulness to it, that God's gift have a remarkable usefulness to them. The psalmist exalts, it's vain for you to rise up early. It's vain for you to sit up late. It's vain for you to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Anyone who's enjoyed a good night's rest knows the excellence of the gift of sleep. And in God's providence, he often withholds from us a good night's rest and thereby showing how excellent such a gift is. And even though it's something we might earnestly desire, we have very little ability to facilitate it ourselves. It's the Lord who gives this gift of sleep, and it is a unique and choice blessing. Paul in 2 Thessalonians says, Now to them who are able, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and they eat their own bread. 
we can note that it's not just nature and what nature demands of us that sets our need for these things on display. But there's also something about the call of Christ. Our Christian life presses the reality of these things upon us, our need for these things upon us, and it uniquely directs us to the one who has all authority and power, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us to seek from our Father our daily bread, but then he sets himself forth in his earthly ministry as the one who multiplies bread. Mm. He's the one who sets himself forth as the providential provider of calm waters such that his beloved can sleep. So not only does our Christian faith not remove from us the necessity for bread, wine, sleep, work, recreation, and medicine, it properly orients us to the Lord Jesus Christ as ruler of all, as the one to whom the Father has given everything, including now the distribution of these gifts. So the Son directs us to seek them from the Father, and the Father is pleased to give them through the Son. And thus we are rightly oriented towards them. We can also note that we need these things. We feel, or I hope you feel your need for these things. Sometimes we don't think about it, perhaps, in the most reflective of ways. But you need bread. You need water. You need clothing. You need shelter. You need sleep. You need work or you'll go crazy. Some sort of productive outlet for your hands or else there will be a deep restlessness of soul. You need these things. God has designed us to need these things. He made the man to work and to tend the garden. He placed him in a garden where his needs would be met. This was an arena of safety to a certain degree where he could rest. And we're to see in this not just God's design, but also a reflection of his wisdom and his goodness in the particularities of this design. We constantly need these things. Thus, we have pressed upon us in a daily and fundamental way the depth of our dependence for provision and thus the depth of our dependence upon a provider. Namely, the creator, the one who has given us these needs. But also his goodness is on display in how widely he gives these things. How frequently he gives these things and how richly he gives these things. We've had opportunity to reflect upon this. He hasn't just given a dash of water and a crust of bread as Lemieux would have it in Beauty on the Beast. He gives a feast. He doesn't sing, be our guest, but that's certainly the impression that you get as you survey the abundance that he has set on display in not just merely meeting our needs, but meeting them richly. You don't sit down to a crust of bread and a sip of water. You sit down to meat and wine. And that's remarkable. You don't just get a mere three hours to give you a barely competent portion of energy. When he blesses us with sleep, it is a full cup that he gives And you feel the life return to your body when you get it. 
and so on and so forth. His wisdom is on display. His goodness is on display and how widespread those gifts are, how regularly he gives them and the richness with which he gives them. We can pause here and point that he's also provided for us in the most fundamental way, has he not? That the depth of our need does not stop at the need for bread and the need for water and the need for air and the need for clothing. These are needs that every creature by virtue of being a creature feels. But we have a greater need by virtue of being sinners, don't we? We stand naked before him, clothed in filthy rags, fig leaves that cannot withstand the wind, let alone the fire of judgment. And he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He gives to us a bread that satisfies. He gives to us living water as he has poured out the Holy Spirit to take up residence in us. Truly, he is good. But we can also mark that the richness of his gifts often leads to us fixating on the gift and forgetting about the giver, does it not? We fall in love with the gifts themselves. They bring a certain amount of pleasure. They bring a certain amount of comfort that we're loath to part with, that we fall in love with such that we consistently err in seeking our pleasure, seeking our satisfaction in the gifts and not finding our true pleasure, finding our true satisfaction, finding our contentment in belonging to the giver of these gifts and being the object of his fatherly care in that he distributes them to us in perfect wisdom and in perfect goodness, such that when he takes these gifts from him, we're guilty to grumble. We're guilty and vulnerable to a grumbling air before him, showing that we want the gift more than the giver. We love the gift more than the giver. Now, on the whole, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to restore in us, a true sight and sense of the Father's supreme worth, of our God's supreme worth over and above all of creation over and above every gift that fills this world. And in fact, he uses the gifts that fill this world to prompt our hearts heavenward to consider the ultimate worth of the giver of these gifts. He uses bread in John chapter 6 to direct to the one who gives bread as that indeed the one who is better than bread. John chapter 4 uses water in a well to highlight that it's really Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is better, who's more necessary, who's more satisfying than the water of the well. Even week in and week out, he meets us in bread and wine, not to stop at bread and wine, but to consider the loveliness of bread and wine and to prompt our hearts heavenward to the more excellent portion of the son who gives himself as our light, our life shedding his blood and supplying us our life. So we can pause and confess our sinful preference for the gifts over the giver. That very often we're like Israel of old, just give us bread and wine and rain, make no demands of us, don't you dare touch the portion that we have, do what we say and if you don't, We'll go to someone else who will. 
That was Israel's plight. That was why they fell into these love affairs with other gods and other nations because they didn't want to have to deal with the Lord of the covenant. They just wanted the good things that the covenant set before them. Beloved, we have the same sinful propensity in us, do we not? And so we confess that very often our wrongheadedness leads us to desire the gift above the giver. We can also confess that all of our abuses of these gifts proceed from unbelief. We say that in Christ and in Christ alone there is true satisfaction, but we often seek solace, comfort in food, drink, work, recreation. We demand that these things satisfy us in a way that these things were never meant to satisfy, but rather God had always meant for these things to direct us to him as the only one who satisfies. We can also confess and mourn our selective condemnation. Drunkenness is often denounced while overeating, overworking, Oversleeping gets a pass. <laughs> All our excesses are ultimately destructive. And they're destructive not just of ourselves, but of others. To see overdrinking as a vice, but overworking as a virtue is wrongheaded. To overlook laziness, gluttony, or addiction to lawful recreations. Netflix video games, running, Tolstoy. (laughs) This is the sort of selective condemnation that the Lord says is hypocritical in such a repugnant way as we had opportunity to consider this morning. Can we grapple with the sense of God's law in this way? Can we come to a sense of our sin in these regards? Can we take solace in the forgiveness that comes to us poetically in eating and by the labor of another as we have sinned by eating and failing to work righteousness, that the one reviled as a drunk and as a glutton died for all our drunken and gluttonous tendencies? And can we go further still and seek from him that excellent virtue of temperance The Lord received and used the gifts and the provisions of the Father with thanksgiving and unwavering love for the giver. Such that when in the wilderness they were absent, he blessed the Father. When he was about to provide an abundance for 4,000, for 5,000, he blessed the Father. When the gifts were there, he blessed. When the gifts were gone, he blessed. And this thanksgiving and the acknowledgement of God in the face of the presence or the absence of these gifts, this is the beginning of wisdom. And in this case, it's the beginning of temperance, which is to say a proper and God-glorifying use of the gifts that he's pleased to give. Paul writes that everything is created by God and good And nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. One is much better positioned to use something well when one receives it as a gift. For the posture of reception is a posture of humility. And this is what's 
at the heart of wisdom, as we receive from the Father good, and as we're oriented to him as the supreme good. Second, we can consider the call for generosity. Westminster Larger 135 calls for the comforting and helping of the distressed. And then 136 states that the sixth commandment forbids the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. The call to comfort and help the distressed forbids withholding what is necessary for the life of others. James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? (laughs) The answer is no good at all. Mm. Now we can note that What James is calling us to here is not a redistribution of goods. God is pleased to give some more and some less. There's all sorts of secondary reasons for why some have more and some have less, but Scripture is constantly profiling God's providence, which is bathed in his holiness, his wisdom, and his goodness, even though his ways are inscrutable. As that which has determined who has more and who has less. The rich in the church are called to be generous and called not to set their hope upon wealth. But their portion is from God. And any who would envy the wealthy, their wealth is actually guilty of the same sin of hoarding riches, which is to say, seeing wealth as something which satisfies, something which comforts. Thus, one need not be material rich to be guilty of the sin of the wealthy. If you see in wealth salvation, you're guilty of the sins of the wealthy. We also do well to note that James 2 highlights that destitution is a distinct possibility for the Christian. That a brother or sister may be in need of the most basic things of life for one reason or another. Perhaps it's God's providence in public disaster or personal disaster. Perhaps it's a combination of folly and sin or something else entirely. We are all vulnerable to the position that James envisions here of the poor brother or sister. There is nothing about following Christ which ultimately guarantees us a bottom level threshold of wealth. We do well to hear that as Americans because we assume that the Lord won't let us drop lower than the at least lower middle class of our socioeconomic standards. This has not been the case. God's people are just as subject to the misfortunes of a fallen world as everybody else are. Moreover, the same sin which is active in the hearts of all, which sometimes leads to ruin, crouches at the door of our hearts. So there is no guarantee, there is nothing about following Christ that says that ultimately 
You don't have to worry about this level of need ever coming for you. And that's humbling. And that promise of the possibility of such things is also connected to the promise that he will not leave us should those things come. And that there is a household to care for us should such a thing befall us. However, we can also note that should you fall into such a hardship, the church will likely make it worse before it makes it better. Mm. That's what James assumes here, doesn't it? This hypothetical situation assumes that the church is going to make things worse before she makes it better. The sinful instinct that will meet all of our hearts is to fall into platitudes or to console ourselves with thoughts that it's really that person's fault and we really need not take any action to remedy their misery. We could take this in another direction. Quite frankly, for us, money is cheap. <laughs> Largely, it's in abundance. And so oftentimes an actual need is met with just throwing money at it so we don't have to give it any actual thought. We don't have to really do the trouble of thinking and praying and entering into what is very clearly an uncomfortable situation. Just throw our cash at it. It's easier to do this, but that doesn't seem to be what James is calling us to here. So what is he calling us to? It seems to be an active and engaged response of faith, which is clothed in mercy. We can note that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. He did not stay withdrawn or disinterested and simply hurl possible solutions from afar. He came down. He became man. He subjected himself to the law. He tasted of our infirmities. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. He paid for all of our needs at great cost to himself. He became intimately involved. He became interested, as it were, even though it was incredibly messy. Children, do you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who knows the parable of the Good Samaritan? How did the Good Samaritan help the man who had need? He bound up all of his wounds, he put him on his donkey, and he found someone to help him so that he could recover entirely. It's important to know that Jesus is the true good Samaritan. He's the one who binds up all our wounds. He's the one who places us on his donkey as he goes through the labor of walking, as it were. He's the one who pays for all of our needs at great cost to himself. But then he also calls us to go and do likewise according to our various abilities and positions. Now again, you can hear from James' text that the most immediate object of our concern in this way is the household of God. James says, if anyone sees a brother or a sister, those are Christians that are met with this, these needs. And so you can feel the unseemliness of not moving towards such a one in compassion when God has moved towards us in compassion. 
We can go further still and say it's this particular household who has an immediate claim upon your concern, compassion, and care in this way. We hear all of the exhortations and calls in Scripture unto love, unto compassion, unto forbearance, not as abstract calls with faceless recipients, but rather as concrete calls towards actual people, these very ones who are surrounding you now. Thus, when a need comes up in this body, by God's providence, that is a specific call to you to act in that situation. It's not an abstract possibility of help. It's an actual call to help do good and this at cost. We need to do better at connecting those dots as seeing the actual needs arise in the body as silly as they may seem, as first world as they may seem, as particular to our context as they may seem, as the actual providential promptings for you to respond in faith and kindness to the call that Christ has put upon you. Who is your neighbor according to the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's the one who is in front of you with a need. That's a wonderful way to define that otherwise nebulous and potentially endless call to do good. Beloved, you are in front of one another, though it does not stop there because we can mark that anyone who bears the name Christian has a rightful claim to our compassion and our care because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are specific individuals, the world over within the household of God that we are called to consider. And so it's fitting to remember our brothers and sisters half a world away. And I think we do well to do that intentionally because it's not something that we do by instinct. We're far more inclined to take an out of sight, out of mind approach But this call to extend this care into the household of God is legitimately heard whenever there is a need that emerges in the church. We can also mark that there is a sense which even our unbelieving neighbor is to be the object of our care. That where there is a need, where there is an opportunity to do good, in this we see God's providential call for us to do good and to extend mercy. We don't need to be Pollyannish about this, thinking that all the difficulties of everyone we encounter can be fixed. We don't need to be naive that we can solve an entire mess of a life in an afternoon but we do have the example of the good Samaritan who went well out of his way to someone for someone to whom he had no bond whatsoever and did good unto them. But we also have the quieter testimony of scripture. And I think we do well to remember this, that even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ is a good. You see what I did there? There's a, the good Samaritan, that's an entire investment versus a cup of cold water, which is just kindness extended to someone in need. 
Both of those things are commended as legitimate. Just because you can't solve a life's problem doesn't mean you can't extend true human kindness. So carry around your subway gift cards, your gospel tracks, or your $5 bills, whatever your conscience dictates, carry them around with you such that if you meet someone in need, out of the abundance that Christ has bestowed upon you, you can reflect a heart that delights to give unto others. We have great cause to be mindful of those in distress, don't we? We have better reason than anyone to be mindful of those who are in distress, even those who send themselves into distress, because that's what we did, is it not? That we send ourselves into distress, that we plunged ourselves into ruin, and yet God, in His sheer mercy, brought us into light brought us into the kingdom of the beloved son. So let's confess how slow we are to give thought to helping others in their distress. Let's confess our sinful inclination to be done with such situations as quickly and as neatly as possible. And we can give thanks that the Lord took a very real interest in our ruined and helpless condition and spared no expense in securing for us not a bare portion of life, but the station of sons in the kingdom of the Father. Beloved, this is the portion you have received. Let it animate a heart that is broad and wide towards any who may have a need that the Lord providentially brings before you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do confess that we are slow in these ways and uh, that you have dealt with us in such abundant kindness, O oh Lord. And so we ask that you would continue to open our eyes to the portion which is passed unto us and that we might be moved more and more, Lord, to live in accord with this great gift, this great hope, this great life which you have bestowed upon us freely. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.